For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've got a third week studying Jesus' big block of teaching near the end of his life where he teaches about the end of the world. This is only a few days before his death and resurrection that he rolls out some of his most blockbuster predictions. You might be wondering, why a third week on this? Well, it's because Jesus talked a lot about this. We still have to finish the rest of chapter 21. We also have to go back and pick up the verses in chapter 17 on this same subject that I skipped and said we were going to cover when we got to Jesus' teaching on the end times. There's a lot in the New Testament, in fact. 300 verses talk about the return of Christ. That's about one in every 25 verses in the New Testament. Out of the 27 books in the New Testament, all but four of them talk about the return of Christ. And three of those four are these little one-chapter books. So they don't even say that much. Galatians is the other one. We're also talking about it again because there's some really cool stuff here. I think it's really interesting. You know, we've already seen quite a few awesome predictions. I don't have time to go into them all. That's why we spent the last two weeks on this. But you know, we saw Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, as well as the events leading up to that. We saw that he predicted the scattering and then the regathering of the Jewish nation, including taking, retaking control of Jerusalem. He predicted that his, this message of the gospel would be taken by his ragtag band of followers out into the whole world, and we see that happening in our very day. He predicted weapons technology capable of wiping out all life in a time of very primitive warfare. He predicted communications technology capable of showing an event to the whole world while it was happening. He predicted commerce technology capable of controlling the spending of everyone on earth, no matter where you are. And he predicted environmental stress Natural disasters on an unprecedented scale, possibly from the huge world population that it predicts as well. Population numbers that have only really become uh, real in our, our own day. And so we see just series of predictions from Jesus tying in with the rest of the predictions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And tonight we've got one more shot at this. And I want to start by going back to Luke 17 on the part that we skipped over. You know, Luke included this, Luke 17, end times teaching, a little bit earlier in his book. Matthew and Mark actually include this with the Olivet Discourse. So apparently Jesus talked about it here. He talked about it earlier. Luke didn't feel the need to put it in there twice. Let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 17. What we're going to see tonight is Jesus is going to talk about the conditions of the end times, what society will be like. He's going to talk specifically about the spiritual decline and the departure from biblical truth. He's also going to talk about the breakdown of morality and relationships. And we're going to see how we see those happening in our own day as well. Well, on this occasion in Luke 17, it says, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Remember the Pharisees, his, his chief opponent in the, in the gospel accounts, they come like, all right, where's this kingdom of God you keep talking about? Remember, they expected, the Old Testament predictions is that this, this king, this savior would show up, that he would wipe out all evil in the world. He would wipe out the nation that was, was in control of Israel. At this time, it was Rome. 
and he would set up this reign of peace and his kingdom would never end. Well, they're like, so where's the kingdom? And Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's already here, Jesus says. But then he does something really strange. He says, then he says to his disciples, the time is coming when you long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. People will tell you, there he is or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning with, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. All right, so on the one hand, he's saying, it's already here. But then he says, man, you're going to wish you could see the coming of the Son of Man, and everybody's going to see it. But you know what? You guys aren't going to see it. It's not going to come in your lifetimes. It's not here yet. So which is it, Jesus? Is the kingdom here already, or is it still coming? And the answer, of course, is both. On the one hand, the kingdom is already here. But on the other hand, it's not here yet. And theologians refer to this as the already not yet tension of the New Testament. There's a lot of spiritual truths that are this way. On the one hand, it's already true. On the other hand, it's not yet fully there. So we've studied Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. How hard this was for his audience to grasp because they expected this, this worldwide reign of the Messiah and Jesus says, I've come to announce the kingdom of God, but it's stage one. It's the initial stage where God, the great king of the universe, is offering a chance for you to come back under his rule. Yeah, I know the human race has rebelled. He says, you can come back. You can be part of my kingdom again. Yeah, he goes a step further. He says, you're not just a citizen, but a family member. I want to adopt you as my son or daughter because of what Jesus came to do to die for sins, to raise from the dead. You can be completely forgiven. You can come under my rule. You can become part of my kingdom. You can become mine, God says. And that is already here. So Pharisees, you, you want the kingdom? Join it. Anybody here tonight, you want to join the kingdom of God? You can join right now by placing your trust in Jesus Christ alone as the way to enter the kingdom of God and then you become, you belong to God and that, that's something that lasts forever. But at the same time, Jesus said it's not yet here. And he says that's a, that's a future event. There's gonna be a second coming of Christ where he is gonna come. He's gonna fulfill those promises in the Old Testament. He's not setting those aside. And he's gonna set up his kingdom. And that's what we've been reading about here in Luke 21 and that's what he's going on to talk about, to teach his disciples about in Luke 17, he's going to talk about the future coming of the Son of Man. And so he said, and what do we learn about the second coming of Christ? Well, for one, the time's coming when you guys, the disciples, will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. What does he mean there? The disciples won't be around to see the second coming. Here's a passage where Jesus is teaching that. So there's a delay, a delay they did not expect. He also teaches this. He says, people are going to tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. Yeah, he, he says the last days are going to be characterized by false teaching and spiritual confusing, confusion. Isn't that what we saw last week in 
Watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. People are going to show up claiming, in some cases, to be the second coming of Christ. In other cases, they're going to come with some sort of false teaching that Jesus says is sent by Satan to lead people astray. And he just says, I'm warning you ahead of time. Beware, don't follow the false prophets. He says in the same teaching in Matthew 24, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. They'll betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And so they're coming in, Jesus says, they come in my name, but they're not from me. They're false prophets. Paul echoes this in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, don't let anybody deceive you guys. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Yes, apostasy. This is a term for to turn away, to, to go away from. It's a departation from the, the, the sound teaching of Scripture where people are going to come with their own teaching. False prophets. It's going to sound pretty good. It's going to be incredibly attractive to people. It's going to draw people in, but Jesus says it's false. The great apostasy predicted by Jesus and here by Paul. Paul says it again in 2 Timothy. There's going to be terrible times in the last days. People having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Yes, there's a form of godliness, and they're even using some of the external words and forms and whatnot, and yet the heart of it, the truth of the gospel, is going to be denied. God's enemy will send all sorts of counterfeits denying all sorts of truths about Christianity. They're going to deny the humanity of Christ. They're going to deny the, de the deity of Christ. They're going to deny the, that Jesus died for sins. They're going to deny the judgment of God. They're going to deny Jesus is the only way to the Father. They're going to deny the resurrection of Christ. There's all sorts of truths that they're going to deny and insert their own teaching in its place. We definitely see this happening in our day. Here's Henry Wyman, an influential religious teacher of the 20th century. Here's what he says. After the crucifixion came the resurrection. I would agree with that. The resurrection was an experience that the disciples had three days after the terrible shock of Jesus' death on the cross. That's funny. I thought it was an experience that Jesus had. Maybe he's using the resurrection in a way that I'm not familiar with. You know, it took three days. It took that long for the numbness of the shock to wear away so that they could again respond to one another and to the past in the way they had done in the living fellowship with Jesus. Oh, so really Jesus never actually rose from the dead. What happened was it took him three days to grapple with the spiritual truth that Jesus rises in our hearts. Oh, so vivid and powerful was this recovery of the kind of interchange they had with one another that they had when Jesus was alive with them that it produced the feeling of his actual presence with them in bodily form. Oh, that must be what the scripture means when it says that Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples finally recovered. So when Paul says, you know, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then your faith is worthless, he means 
if he hasn't risen in your heart, if you haven't had the resurrection experience. I was just, this is alive and well today. I was just talking with a guy a week and a half ago who was telling me about how an experience he had at his old church he used to go to. And he was saying he had been coming out to some Xenos Bible studies and then he went in to church on Easter Sunday and the pastor got up front and he said, I know it's Easter, but I just got to be honest with you. I don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He's like, if you do agree, if you do believe in that, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you, but frankly, I don't even think it's important. What's important is the Easter faith where Jesus is alive in your heart. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. False teachers coming along using spiritual words but denying the meaning behind them. Here's Rob Bell (laughs) on hell. He says, do I believe in a literal hell? Of course. How does a person describe that unique look, that ravaged, empty stare you find in the eyes of a cocaine addict? That's the literal hell that he believes in. Not a place of judgment people go when they die, no. I've seen what happens when people abandon all that is good and right and kind and humane. That is literal hell. Not the place we learned about earlier in Luke. He says, you know, when we read eternal punishment, it's important we don't read categories and concepts into a phrase that aren't there. Jesus isn't talking about forever as we think of forever. Using using words from the Bible, denying the meaning of those words. False. Man, this this is an awesome study from Daniel Dennett, a well-known atheist writer, evolutionary psychologist. He went and he interviewed pastors who are doing this very thing, pastors who work for churches, they don't believe the Bible anymore, and they have to get up every Sunday and and give a sermon. And these guys obviously were anonymous, so he's given them names like Wes, the Methodist pastor. Here's what Wes says. My colleagues here are very educated, very well-read, and do not believe the significance of Christianity lies in whether it's literally true. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead literally. They don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe all those things that would cause a big stir in their churches (laughs) that they work for. But that's not uncommon in mainline denominations or even in the Catholic Church, he says. What about Daryl the Presbyterian? Here's what Daryl says. It's not that I'm not a believer. I do believe in God. But I find the character of my belief is much closer to that pantheist view than the typical theist. <laughs> you know, the God of, of Hinduism or Buddhism or, or whatnot. So I, he can honestly say, I believe in God. He just has to hope that his parishioners don't dig too deeply into what he means by that. I really like Adam from the Church of Christ. Adam says, here's how I'm handling my job on Sunday mornings. (laughs) I see it as play acting. (laughs) I kind of see myself as taking on a role of a believer in a worship service and performing. Because I know what to say. I know how to pray publicly. I can lead singing. In fact, I love singing. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't believe what I'm saying anymore in some of these songs. But, you know, I see it as taking on the role in performing. Maybe that's what it takes for me to get myself through this, but that's what I'm doing. I'm where I am because I need the job still, he says. And that's actually really what it's all about. They don't really have a, a, an alternative career path. If I had an alternative, a comfortable paying job, something I was interested in doing, and a move that wouldn't destroy my family, that's where I'd go. Because I do feel kind of hypocritical. <laughs> it used to be the word hypocritical was like a sin. I don't hold that view anymore. I, I use the word hypocritical differently. As in, I'm just not being forthright. <laughs> I mean, how many of us went, uh, spent years going to church and never heard anything about the Bible except for like, you know, isolated proverbial platitudes. Nothing about coming into a relationship with Christ or Jesus dying for our sins. This is a, it's a common experience to sit through church and never hear anything about the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus predicts the end times will be characterized by. It will be this on a scale that we've never seen before. And these are counterfeits, like we said, generated by God's enemy to throw people, to confuse people, to throw people off the trail. You know, how many Christian groups teach the second coming of Christ has already happened? There's tons of them. You know, Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre, an example from maybe 30 years ago. Uh, Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate from the late 90s. Mass, another mass suicide. David Koresh in Waco, another mass suicide killing. Uh, Sun Myung Moon in the Unification Church, the so-called Moonies. He claims to, be the, uh, <clears throat> the second, claimed to be the second coming of Christ. An Sang Hong in the World Mission Society. That's one that's still active here on campus. Claimed to be the uh, second coming of Christ, born in Korea in 1918. Got a little awkward when he died in 1985, and the world still didn't come to an end. So now they have God the Mother. His wife lives on, still alive. She's God the Mother. They've got four people in their trinity um, this is, Jesus says, look. <laughs> they're also, they also really do not want you to read the Bible on your own. That's another characteristic of false teachers. They do not want you reading your Bible. And this is one reason why it is so important for you to read the Bible for yourself. It's because I need you guys to be in there. I need you to check on me. You've got to be checking on whoever's teaching you the Bible. This is why we put the Bible verses up on the screen. Each week, this is why we, we just teach right through books of the Bible, including on unpopular topics. Beware of any Bible teacher that's like, oh, 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 don't read this, okay? Just let me interpret it for you. You're too stupid, okay? You haven't had the training that I've had. Beware of that and run. If somebody's trying to keep you from reading the Bible for yourself, we should be teaching people the Bible teaching them how to interpret Scripture, not through some mystical, crazy method, but the way we interpret anything by looking at what the words say and what the words mean and what they meant to the original audience and interpreting passages to harmonize with one another, not ripping one sentence out and building a whole doctrine on it. That's part of the way I'm pulling in so many end times teachings. I'm trying to show you the whole scope of this, this teaching in the Bible. Yeah, it's going to be a spiritually confusing time. Jesus says, look, when I show up, you're not going to have to have somebody be like, oh, Jesus, the second coming of Christ happened 30 years ago. 
No, he says it's going to be like lightning. You know, lightning, it's fast, it's bright, it's visible to everyone. And Jesus says, that's, that's a better analogy for the second coming of Christ. That's what it's going to be like when I come back. Nobody's going to have to tell you. You're going to know. But the delay. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then he says, he gives two analogies from the Old Testament on what things will be like in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He says, first, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. What were the days of Noah? What was it like? Genesis 6, 5 tells us. It says, God looked down on the, the earth and he saw that every thought of mankind was always evil continually. It was a time of moral degeneration, of moral decay, of the breakdown of, of ethics. And it was, with that always comes along with it, the breakdown of relationships. And it was into this world where God saw things breaking down like this that he called one guy Noah. Probably the only guy that was listening at that point to God. And he said, I want you to build an ark to escape from the, the flood of judgment I'm going to send on the earth. And we also learn from Scripture, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was going around warning people of the coming judgment, warning them to turn to God now for salvation because the time would come when it's going to be too late. And he preached for a long time. And then finally, when he was done, you can imagine how stupid Noah would have looked building an ark in the middle of dry land, would have no way to move it to water even if he had wanted to. Scripture says Noah and his family got on there, that God shut the door and the rains came. And God wiped out humanity at that moment and he started over. He says, you know, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back the second time. People will have had warning and they're just going to be like, whatever. Go on with their life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with eating or drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Those are not morally debauched acts. What it is is a spiritual insensitivity, a preoccupation with the things of the world that finds no time for the things of God. And so when, Je when Jesus comes back, who are you going to identify more with? The people on the boat with Noah? Or the rest of humanity going about their business until all of a sudden they realize it's too late. Jesus gives, he says, then the flood came and destroyed them all. By the way, this is what Jesus thought about the Old Testament, that it actually happened. Including the parts that some Christians seem to be the most embarrassed about. Including the judgment parts as well. He says, you know, it was the same in the days of Lot. Another Old Testament example. This is Genesis chapter 18 and 19. God looked down on the city where Lot was living, Sodom and, his, and Gomorrah and the other area, cities in that region, apparently. And he looked down and he was like, this, this is so wicked. Things have degraded so badly. I'm going to wipe out this city, God says. And so God, he sent these two, these two angels. As the story goes, they show up and, and in the Old Testament, angels typically show up looking like just regular men. And they show up in the city of Sodom and they, they go to the town square and Lot meets them there. He's like, oh, you got to come stay with me. And they're like, nah, I'm, we'll just camp out here tonight in the town square. And Lot's like, 
you cannot do that. Come to my house. So they go with him. They get there. And at that point, it says that a mob showed up. All the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. And they shouted a lot, Hey, where are those men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. A little shocking here. This is the kind of greeting these guys got. This is, this is how far things had fallen. It's all the men, the young and the old men, had come out for rape. And this was just accepted in this city. Well, Lot comes out to try to talk some sense into this mob. Lot's, Lot's not looking too much better either. It's amazing that he even got rescued from this. He try, he's like, look, I've got two daughters who have never been with a man. Why don't you just take them? You can't do this to my guests. The, man, the, the gang is like, no, and they start, to cr- they start to press in upon him. It says the angels strike the, the mob blind, pull Lot inside the house, and they're like, you've got to get out of here. Tell everybody you know. So he goes to the guys his daughters are ma- engaged to, and he's like, we got to go, and they're like, whatever. Finally, at daybreak, they grab Lot, his daughters, and his wife, and they're like, we are leaving They pull him out of the city and it begins to rain down judgment upon that city. Fire, it says. I don't know what this was. Wipes out everyone who was left. Didn't have time to gather their things. They head out of there. And in fact, it says that Lot's wife basically turns back and stares back longingly at the city of something they had warned her not to do. And it says she also perished right there. So Lot is left with himself and his two daughters. Story doesn't get much better from there either. (laughs) But the point is, the same thing. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. So we see both the moral degeneration and complete spiritual callousness, insensitivity of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Yes, again, people are going to be going about their business just like they did yesterday, but the only difference is that day is going to be the day that the Son of Man returns. And then judgment will happen. Are they right with God or not? But what we see here in these stories is another characteristic of the last days, which is moral decline and the breakdown of relationships. Yes, this is another facet of life in the end times. Moral decline and the breakdown of relationships. And this is something that's predicted in 2 Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, without love for, for people. Not lovers of good or haters of good. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul is hammering on the word love there and he's showing the difference between what people should love and what they will love. They'll be devoted to their money and pleasure instead of what is good and God and people as they should. Jesus puts it this way, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
Yeah, in a time of increased wickedness, in a time of lawlessness, in a time of complete moral breakdown, it's not safe to put yourself out there with people. It's not safe to be close with someone. Marriage is no longer safe. Friendships are no longer safe. I gotta protect myself. This is how some people have viewed marriage these days. The marriage rate is at an all-time low in our country. It's that way in other parts of the world as well. Why? Because people are so skeptical that marriage can work. What about this study from the American Sociological Association? They surveyed people, how, uh, how many close friends do you have? It reads, Americans are most so, more socially isolated than they were 20 years ago, separated by work, commuting, and the single life, researchers reported on Friday. Nearly a quarter of people surveyed said they had zero close friends with whom to discuss personal matters. I wonder if you would fall into that category as well. Who are you really close to, to discuss personal matters with in a real way? More than 50% named two or fewer confidants, most often immediate family members, which often has problems of its own, the researchers said. This is a big social change, and it indicates something that's not good for our society, said Duke University professor Lynn Smithlovin, lead author on the study. A big social change, she says. It was a surprising drop in the number of close friends since 1985. That's over a 20-year period from when this study to that study. At that time, Americans most commonly said they had three friends whom they'd known for a long time, saw often with whom they shared a number of interests. She said they were almost as likely to name four or five friends. Relationships often sprang from their neighborhoods or communities. This is why our only close friends are with our family because we can't even form new relationships. People were not asked why they had fewer intimate ties, but Smith Lovin said that part of the cause could be that Americans are working more, marrying later, having fewer children, and commuting longer distances. Well, what is working more and commuting longer distances? Isn't this the love of money that Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 3? Isn't this what's getting in the way of our relationships? It helps that we have such convenient alternatives to relationships that are so much safer, like television. Dr. Robert Putnam, Harvard professor, his study, Bowling Alone, charts the decline of friendships and involvement in community across America. He says nothing. He, he says, okay, what, what's the greatest indicator that correlated with low friendships and low involvement in community? It wasn't low education not full-time work, not long commutes in urban agglomerations, nor poverty or financial distress. You know what it was? It's more broadly associated with civic disengagement and social disconnection than dependence on TV for entertainment. He's got this chart and he's like, if people answer definitely to the question, TV is my primary form of entertainment, he shows negative and positive correlations with that. And this is 15 years ago. This is before smartphones. The internet was still like something you dialed up to at that point. Think how much more options we have these days. In fact, um, this study is pretty interesting from the Archives of Sexual Behavior. It's a study of, from 2012 of Second Life Gamers, okay? Second Life is this virtual reality world where you can go in there and you can live life including forming romantic relationships, including having sex. 
And they studied sexual practices in second life versus second sexual practices in the real world. This came out of Cambridge in 2012. Out of 235 responders, it says, the respondents rated their virtual world relationships better in the five categories of marital satisfaction than their real world relationships. Half of them felt they could communicate better with their second life partner than their real life partner. One third said they felt a stronger connection to their real life partner on the screen. Most said it was their second life relationship was like a real long distance relationship. 70% said that. Even only 19% had ever met their second life partner in person. So it's like a long term, long distance relationship where I've never met the person in real life, only in the digital world. They were evenly split with regard to which type of relationship offered greater sexual satisfaction, 43 to 42%. Most said their second life relationships were much shorter duration than real life relationships. Yeah, that would make sense. If they're generally spending less time with their second life partners, that means fewer opportunities for arguments or miscommunication in relationship. Yeah, it's not likely you're going to come home from work and your second life partner didn't do the dishes that day. It's not likely they would even have the opportunity to do anything to hurt you because everything is mediated through the screen. Finally, second life avatars may have any appearance, so they're likely to meet ideals of beauty and physical attractiveness better than real persons. Yeah, instead of accepting the person for who they are with their imperfections, you can just dial up whatever you want to look like. And that can be the persona that you present. I think we'll see more of this as, as, as virtual reality gets more and more interesting, more and more mimicking actual reality. Uh, the safety that's provided there, but it's really in the absence of any closeness. Any real lasting closeness of a personal relationship. It's a... It's a Modern substitute for it. Christians need to be lights in this darkness. We need to hold forth the thing that's at the center of Christianity, and that's the love of God. This, as the rest of the world plunges into darkness, plunges into moral anarchy, and as relationships break down more and more, we're going to stand out when we hold forth the truth of the Word of God in one hand and the love of God in the other hand as people see that our relationships work, that our marriages work, that our families work, we're going to be doing something that the rest of the world, by and large, is failing at and withdrawing from. Well, Jesus says on that day, the coming of the Son of Man, no one who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go get them. No one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. In other words... The coming of Christ is not a time for gathering the things that are about to be burned. Yes, some people, the coming of Christ is going to mean the end of everything they've invested their lives in. Everything they've loved is going to perish because it's my house and my car and my stuff, my bank account. It's all going to be zeroed out. For other people, though, the second coming of Christ is going to be the time when I finally go to what I love the most. Where I finally go to the place where I've stored up all my treasures in heaven. What a difference that'll be in that day. 
The difference will be where you've invested your life, in eternity or in the temporary things of now. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. That's that same enigmatic saying that Jesus keeps teaching throughout the Gospels. Saving my life by my definition of it, that's the best way to lose it. Giving my life away like Jesus did, that's how to find it and save your life. In fact, he says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. What a sad time this will be. Two people are going about their lives right next to each other, just as they had before, and then the next moment, one whisked away to everlasting judgment, the other one ushered in to everlasting life. And then the disciples asked kind of a weird question. Where, Lord? They asked. I mean, I guess the point that what they're asking is, okay, even if your, your presence, your coming is going to be visible everywhere, I guess it's got to be somewhere. Jesus is coming back in bodily form. So they're like, where's that going to be? And then Jesus' answer is even weirder. He says, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Which is a really gross image. I mean, this is vultures, right? Gathered around a corpse of some kind. This would have been really gross connotations. It's almost like they're like, where are you coming back, Lord? And Jesus is like, dead kittens. <laughs> and they're like, ooh. <laughs> maybe it means the vultures, maybe they're like, like the signs of the times and like, it's like, when is this going to happen? He's like, well, you can't see exactly where, when it's going to be, but it, you can see the vultures, and you know it's pretty close, right? Um, I don't really know what that means, actually. So, But there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> what about Luke 21? Let's finish up this. Here's where we left off last time, right? There's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. You know, this, this could be metaphorical, right? This could be like, you know, upheaval in the world. It could be literal, though. It could be literally there's things happening in the heavens that are mystifying. I mean, uh, a huge volcanic eruption, a meteor, uh, a meteor hitting the earth, a couple nukes going off would be enough to just plunge the world into darkness. And so any of these things could be things that precipitate the end times. The nations will be in anguish. could be metaphorical and literal. Nations will be in anguish, though. The roaring and tossing of the sea. People fainting from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Fainting from worry, from, from fear. That much pressure pressing in on people as they fear for their lives and they have no idea what's happening. And at that time, he says, they're going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Redemption, yes, an important concept in the New Testament. And in Greek, that was the word used when they would buy a slave out of slavery. The price would be paid and they'd be set free. The New Testament says... Jesus purchased our redemption with his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so in a sense, we've already got redemption, Christians. But at the same time, Romans 8.23 says, we groan awaiting our redemption, our, the full adoption as sons. This is, 
there's an already not yet element to this where we're going to be delivered not just from the penalty of sin but from the presence of sin and the effects of sin in this fallen world and Jesus is going to rescue us and we're going to be free. He said, look at the fig tree and really all the trees, right? When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and you know summer's near. Yeah, I mean, that's the way trees work is they just sit there all winter, bare. But then there comes a moment and you don't know exactly what day or hour it's going to be where the leaves come out. And that's always a good day in my household. I'm always pretty happy to see those leaves starting to come out on that tree because that means winter is drawing to a close. The end of winter is near and spring is coming. And that's what Scripture promises. The eternal winter of sin and death, Jesus says, you'll know that it's coming to a close. And you should be able to recognize when the leaves are starting to come out. Many of the leaves are already out, as we've seen over the last couple weeks. He says, when you see these, hap- these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Some people are like, well, there you have it, Jesus. He thought he was going to bring in the kingdom of God right there. He's completely wrong. It's been 2,000 years. Case closed. Jesus was an idiot. <laughs> all right. The question, which generation will not pass away until all these things have happened? Okay, just read the verse, people. What's it say? The one that sees these things happening, okay? It uses the word happen in both. When you see these things happen, the generation that sees these things happening won't pass away until all the things have happened. (laughs) It's going to go quick, all right? When the final signs start to come down, it's not going to be another hundred years. It's going to be all within a generation. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. You can, you can take these promises to the bank. These are Jesus' words. <laughs> he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Yeah, this is the warning from Lot and Noah as well. You, know, you think about a trap. Here's a little mouse trap. What's the point of a good trap? Well, you need some bait, like that big chunk of cheese. And they want you to focus on the bait. And then the other part is the capturing part needs to come quickly, right? And what he says, it's not that God has set a trap for you or something, but his enemy has. Satan has set up the world system to distract us from spiritual things. And he says some people are going to be so focused on the cheese, they're going to be shocked. When the, when the spring releases and the trap comes over. Some uh, non-Christians, it's going to be too late to receive Christ at that point. Christians, well, there are going to be some regrets. 1 Corinthians says you'll still pass on into heaven as one that's escaped through a fire and everything you owned was burned up, but you'll still be there and you'll be glad to be there. And Jesus is going to wipe away all the tears and stuff. And yet he says, some people, when you look out at the way the world is headed, and you read passages like this, it's depressing. It's scary. Just look at, read the headlines. The latest shooting, where the political situation is heading. Uh, And so some people, because because life is hard, they escape. 
the carousing, that's like partying and, dr- and drunkenness. That's how they escape. Others just sit and worry constantly. They worry all the time. And Jesus says, neither of those things. No, that's not what you need to be doing. You don't need to escape. You don't need to try to take things into your own hands. You need to trust in the Lord. You need to find the joy of the Lord in the midst of a world that is falling apart on all sides. He says, you know, this will come upon those who live on the face of the whole earth. This is universal in scope. And so finally, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus' commands are be careful and be on, the, be on the alert praying. That's what we need to be doing. It's not about having a well-stocked nuclear bunker. It's not about trying to figure out who's the Antichrist. You know, is it Trump? Is it Hillary? I don't know. <laughs> One day I feel like it's him, the next day I feel like it's her. No, it's not so we prepare our end times charts. God wants you to prepare your hearts. He wants you to be ready. It's a spiritual alertness, prayerful, spiritual alertness to fight the battle before us. That's what he's calling you to. To live for God completely so that when that day comes, you're not going to have regrets. Because every day is, is another chance to impact eternity. It's about suffering with joy and enduring to the end. Even when we want to quit, it's clear Christians are going to suffer right up to the end in this. And even when it's painful, even when we want to quit, we know where to find joy. We know where to find peace. We know how to go to the Lord and to get filled with His love so that I can love other people in a loveless world. Let's just try to draw a few conclusions. First of all, on the one hand, the kingdom of God is here. It's right there. You can enter in tonight. Forgiveness of sins, adoption as a son or daughter indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's all there if you're willing to fall to your knees and receive Christ and accept His payment for your sins. But on the other hand, it's not here yet. The fullness of the kingdom of God, the final form of the kingdom of God, that's still coming. And as the end approaches, Jesus predicts there's, it's a time of spiritual confusion. It's a time of breakdown in morality and relationships. But For Christians, he calls on us to fix our eyes on heaven and to shine his lights in this dark world. That's what he gives us the power to do, and he will be with you to the end. Jesus on the end times. There you go. Yes, Lord, help us to be aware, alert, prayerful. I pray that we would not slumber away and live in the darkness. But I pray that we would live as children of light because that's what we are. I pray for the non-Christian here, God. I pray that they would not turn away from this, this message and this warning, but instead they would place their faith in Christ and place their life in His hands as well, Lord, and choose to live for something real. I pray for the Christians here too, Lord. Some of us, were, we've been slumbering, we've been wasting our lives, we've been weighed down with escape or anxiety. I pray that instead we turn to prayer, we draw near to you, that we would seek to influence eternity by your power and by your spirit. And I thank you, God, that you love us and you're not 
You're not holding out on anyone, but you're eager with open arms to take anyone who wants to turn back to you, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.